Church, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you haven't left us alone in trying to figure you out, but you have revealed the knowledge that we need to know who you are and to know who we are. And God, your son Jesus is the one that gets the preeminence of all things. That through him all things were created and by him all things hold together and he will be exalted. And I pray that beyond creation you would find in our lives the preeminence of Christ. And that we would rely and depend on nothing. Nothing but Jesus and his righteousness. So God, I pray you be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to see this great truth that must, that must be understood by us. That we must fight for. And that God, that you would write on the tablets of our heart as the law, faith in Jesus alone. So God, we pray it all in his precious name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We will be continuing our series, Real Gospel, Real Joy. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 4 through 11. And as you're turning, I want to kind of bring us up to speed. Recap where we were last week. The book of Philippians, we've called it Real Gospel, Real Joy, because you will see the command throughout the whole book to rejoice. Rejoice always. And again, I will say rejoice, Paul says. And remember where he is writing this from. He is in prison. He is in prison writing to encourage a group of believers, primarily Gentile, non-Jewish Gentile believers to encourage them and to tell them to rejoice. Now, last week, last week we heard, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Look at verses one through three with me and let's remember what we were taught. Pastor Charles went through this message and it's very important that we connect last week with this week because last week, today, and next week are very, very connected. It's a, it's a continuous thought that we, we must not divide or segment as best we can. So verses one through three, here's what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. It's not, I I have no trouble reminding you of this truth. And then he says this, look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, the Judaizers, those who would come into the church, who would come to you and tell you, you must do this in order to please and impress and be closer to God, primarily circumcision. You must be circumcised. And then that glorious truth in verse three, we, for we are the circumcision identity. You already have that identity of the set apart ones of God, God's people. You have it Gentiles, though you are not circumcised, you are circumcised in the heart because you belong to the Lord through faith in Jesus alone. And he says, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put, what does that word say? Seeing you making sure you're paying attention and put what? No confidence in the flesh. We are the ones who belong to God. We worship not by the law, And we glory in our spirit and our being, not on a location or a mountain, but we worship within our hearts. 
and in our being and in our soul and glory only by Jesus Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Let me kind of recap last week what we learned. We learned what matters to God is rejoicing and enjoying Jesus Christ. Could you imagine, could you imagine a football team or any type of sports team rejoicing before they won the game, right? There's not a reason to rejoice until you've actually gotten the victory. So it would not make sense to rejoice if the game had not yet been won. And so for those who take time to dance in the middle of the field when it's only third quarter, the coach is like, what in the world are you doing? Hard work still to be done. But the reason we can rejoice as Christians is because the battle has already been done. Is there anything in our life that we're going to to feel like we have to catch up on and win in order to be made right with God? Nothing. So this is why we can rejoice. Real gospel. The real gospel, that it's already been done and won and accomplished through Jesus, and you become the benefactor of that through faith, and it is yours instantaneously, and you are waiting for that victory at the end to be revealed to you, being guarded by the power of God through what? Through faith. That is a reason to rejoice. And Paul did not want them to fall back into the law. That's why he said, look out for these people who are going to come and try to get you to trade in that wonderful joy for something that will put you back in a burdensome, burdensome scenario. So here's what we're going to answer today. We looked at what mattered to God, but he's going to continue this thought. and He's going to make it a little bit more personal and more specific. What should matter to us? When we think about living our Christian life on earth, what is it we should care about in this life? Day in, day out, looking out for, saying, this needs to be of utmost importance to me. This is what matters to me. And if it doesn't, this is what I will spend time working on in prayer and in study to make sure this is the affection and the reaching and the desire of my heart. And we're going to continue in verse 4. If you see in verse 3, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. And then he puts, there's a dash mark And he's going to say something. So here's what we're going to say and answer. What should matter to a Christ follower? What should matter to us? First and foremost, first and foremost, what should matter to us is putting no confidence in the flesh. Putting no confidence in the flesh. We are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. And then look what he says here in verse 4. Paul is going to get personal. He says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What is Paul doing here? What is actually going on here where he would take time to look back in his past and give us this awesome record of who he was and his accomplishments? So here's what I want us to show us. Paul is the perfect example of bragging rights. He's giving himself as the perfect utmost archetyped example on on earth as the one who reached the pinnacle of accomplishments for God. And if he 
could brag, it was going to be able to be able to brag more than any other person on the planet. So remember what these people are up against. They have these Judaizers coming in saying, you need to do this. You need to be like me. And they're putting confidence in the things that they can do in their own strength, in their own power, in the flesh. And so Paul's going to take them on. He's going to take them on. He goes, okay, you want to play that game? You want to play that game? You want to let these people play that game? How about this? If anyone, that's why he says this, I have reason to be confident in the flesh more than all of these Judaizers who are coming to oppress you and turn your eyes away from Christ. Yeah, they may tempt you. There may be, as we learned last week, the social and political pressure to be circumcised, to go back under Jewish law so you can have the freedom of worshiping, so you can be socially acceptable to all those you've grown up with or you've been around. Yeah, you might have that pressure, but I want, don't let anyone come in and take this away from you. Don't put any confidence in your flesh. And look, if, anyone could, if you could take it from anyone, I have reason to brag more than anyone else. And he's going to give this crazy pedigree, this crazy list of credentials that he has in his past that makes him the ultimate Jew far above and beyond these Judaizers. I want you to imagine that it's kind of like this. Imagine you're, uh, you're learning to do something. Say, say it's basketball. I'm going to use a sports analogy again. Forgive me, but I think we can all understand this one. Imagine you're having someone who plays basketball on a weekly basis teach you how to play, right? And you meet with them every week and they're showing you form and fundamentals. But what if one day Michael Jordan showed up? Michael Jordan showed up and he looked at, he looked at everything that this person's teaching you and was like, yeah, that's all wrong. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the professional you listen to the one who, who, who obviously knows what they're talking about, and that's kind of what Paul's doing here. All right, you want to you be tempted to listen to these guys? You think that they have this rat? Let me, let me show you the reason for confidence in the flesh that I have, and then let me show you what I did with it. So let's go through this. The perfect example of bragging rights, and through this list, Paul's going to point out areas of our life that we would probably be tempted to trust in put our safety and our confidence and our strength and our reliance and our dependence on. First and foremost, he says this. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You know what that is? That's him saying, I put confidence in ritual. Ritual. Not only am I Jewish by birth, but my circumcision from the very beginning and even what my parents did for me was something that was the utmost greatest on the right day and in the right way. My circumcision was perfect and I can brag because I have that. Guess what? You become circumcised. You'll never be able as an adult Gentile believer be circumcised on the eighth day. So even if you do get circumcised, it's going to be second rate. You won't be able to be, have a circumcision like me ritual, right? What are the things in our life that are ritualistic? Maybe even according to Christianity and towards our belief that might be ritual in our life that we could be tempted to rely on. Feel good about at the end of the day. Hey, I do this. This is routine for me and I do this and it gives me a reason to boast as if I'm a good Christian close to God. Look what he says. This, then he says this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Now he's basing his bragging rights on race, on race. 
I'm of the people, the very people of God who have the bloodline all the way back to Abraham. That's me. You know, you would think you could say that people don't think they're better than other people because of their race. But as we see through history, all of human history since the fall, this has always been an issue. Always been an issue where we're tempted to think that we're better than someone because of what we were born into. Which is what he goes to next when he says this, of the tribe of Benjamin. Right, So it gets even more detailed. Not only am I of the people of Israel, but the people of Israel within Israel itself. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Not these other tribes that left Judah hanging in the monarchy, but I stayed with Judah. Benjamin, the the son that Jacob loved dearly. And Benjamin, the tribe that produced the first king of Israel, which is probably why uh, Paul's parents named him Saul, maybe in honor of that. Right, great pride, great p- pride in this in these natural accomplishments, these accomplishments that simply came from him being born. He has these things to say about himself, right? And we get enamored with that, right? Think about that. Imagine you meet someone; they're like, "Yeah, I'm, my great 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 grandfather is someone super super special," right? We become ooh. I'm of the bloodline of Dale Earnhardt. Now down south, that's special. You are someone. You want to get to know. Let me just be close to you, right? Immediately, I feel the need to go fast, win a race. Well, you know, you know, so-and-so over there. Hey, he's got Dale Earnhardt's blood, right? Special. We do this all the time, right? We think we're special because of the family status that we have. Again, why is Paul doing this? He's building his, his credibility. He's showing what he had in his past that he could have bragged in. Reasons for confidence in the flesh, he's giving them. And his confidence, his rap sheet, his credentials are pretty powerful, especially back in that day. People would have just been enamored by it. But then he goes past his natural accomplishments, the things that he gained simply by being born, and then he starts to go into the things that he could control. Look what he says next. He said, Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Very interesting. What is he relying on there? He's relying on their tradition. 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 You know, as time went on, the Hebrew people began to let Gentiles come in and the ways of God and the traditions of the Hebrews began to get muddied by outsiders. And so when he says, I am not only a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of Hebrews, there could be certain implications. Not only that he could speak Hebrew, but he went through the strict adherence to education to tradition day in and day out that kept the pure bred traditional religion of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people. He's like, if anyone wants to brag that one, they got the family status, I got it. But if anyone wants, show me someone that adhered to the tradition of being a Hebrew, staying away from Gentiles, not letting any outsider in, staying true to the law of God, learning under Gamaliel, learning under the right people, learning, learning and growing and growing and growing in the traditions of my father and forefathers as a Hebrew, as a true Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he says this, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's religion. Confidence in religion. Confidence in his religion. When it comes to the law of God, guess what I was? a Pharisee, which would have been the, the 
climactic epitome of adhering to the law. The example of the religious leaders who, who made it their every single day effort to adhere 100% to God's law. And not only that, change the culture around them and even try to make everyone around them, including the Gentiles, to adhere to that law as well. And that was their mission and their goal. And he says, if anyone wants to brag about their adherence to the law, you better believe I can more than them. I was a Pharisee. And look at this next one. He says this, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, what's the focus there? The focus is this. I put confidence in my sincerity, sincerity, right? I had confidence in my ritual, my race, my family status, my tradition, my religion, but not only this, my sincerity, my devotion as to zeal, right? I wasn't just following these things because I had to, and I worked out and I eked my way by and I just out of great suffering. No, I was zealous. I was zealous for God. So much so that it brought me to the point where I became one of the leading runners in the persecution of these Christians that came along and started messing things up. Started trying to bring in this outside and claim to be the Messiah. And I started to persecute this church zealously, zealously persecute the people of God, which is ironic. Which is very ironic. And because of this, Paul says that he's the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. Right? When his eyes were opened and he realized, no, are you, I, the zeal that I have is against the Lord and against his people. But God said he was merciful to me because I acted in ignorance. But Paul's using this to show if anyone thinks that they have the reason to brag because of their zeal and sincerity to God, I the more. I the more. And then finally this, he shows that he would have put confidence in his works, his legalistic works, because he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. That word blameless doesn't necessarily, he's not necessarily saying perfect, but he's saying no one could have said anything against me without in the community and in my own heart, according to my conscience, I follow the law as best as someone could. As to the law, under the law of my own righteousness, blameless. You see what Paul's doing here? Coming to these, uh, writing to these Philippians, writing to these Gentiles who are being tempted to go back to something other than Christ. He's trying to point out these people and say, have nothing to do with them. Look out for them. Don't let them tempt you that way. And, and let me, if, if anyone has reason to brag, it's me. Let me give you this. Now, who are you going to listen to? Take it from me. And then what did he do with all of this? Look in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. All of this, all of this that I could have bragged in, I looked on, I relied on, I worked for, I'm losing it all and I have lost it all because Christ is far better. What should matter to a Christ follower? What should matter? Well, first, putting no confidence in the flesh. Not letting anything come between you and Christ, which brings us to the next thing that we should, be, we should be concerned with. The next thing that should matter dearly to all of us as Christ followers is this, understanding the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
Look at verse eight with me. Philippians three, verse eight. He says, indeed, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The reason this point, the reason it says that we should matter and care about understanding this is because if we don't understand the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, these things that are accomplishments in our past or that we struggle with will always be tantalizingly tempting and beautiful to us. The only way to count these things as something that I should get rid of and not rely on is by truly understanding the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Knowing him, that word knowing Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about that. There's a difference between someone who reads about something and then someone who experiences something. This isn't the type of knowledge that when you read about loving Jesus, you know all the right answers. I know Jesus and I know all the right answers and I know that I should love him. This is no, 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 I, I have experienced Jesus and I know who he is and I know what he's like and I've experienced his love and I have it. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. It's something that goes beyond mental and into the heart. He says, indeed, I count everything, everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is a fulfillment of some of the things that Jesus talked about. You know when Jesus gave parables and he talked about he talked about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like? Some of the parables he used, let me let me remind you of two. He said the kingdom of God is like someone who was walking around and they walked into a field, right? This open field, and in the middle of the field they found this treasure. And they're so enamored by this the value and the worth of this treasure. What did they do? They went and sold everything took the money that they had, and they bought that field. Why would they do that? Because they wanted that treasure to be theirs. And so they used everything that they already had that they thought was valuable. In light of that, this was far more valuable. I'll lose everything that I can back here to get this. Jesus reiterates that by talking about the pearl of great price. Right? There's, someone stumbles against this pearl of great price, and what do they do? They go and sell everything in order to buy it. Sell everything in order about it. Remember, a parables, he's not talking about money. The simple truth he's talking about is when you truly see the kingdom of God, when you truly understand the surpassing worth of Jesus and the gospel and God and what it means to have Christ, to know Christ, to be in Christ, if you've truly seen that, everything else begins to lose its allure. So let's ask ourselves, do we, do we know in our heart, do we, do we, man, I, I understand the surpassing worth of Jesus. I do. I do. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know. And I only want to know him more. You see, Paul, his heart is one. He says, I've counted everything, not only just my accomplishments and the things that I would rely on and be confident in, but anything that would get in the way of me having Christ, forget it. I'm losing it. I'm losing it. Cause Why? Because he has to, because he feels like he just has to. In order to go to heaven, I just got to do this. No, no, he's found something so valuable, something that's so precious in his sight, and he's seen the reality that everything in comparison is worthless, as we're going to see here next. He uses that word count. I count everything. 
That's something that means the leading thought in your mind. The first thing that comes to your mind when you think about these things is what? Is like losing it, losing it. So that means if we begin to think about the things in our life that really bring us, we're not talking about sins here. We're not talking about, we're talking about good religious things that we have that bring us comfort, snuggly pillow feelings at night that we're great with God. Paul's saying, if, if when we think about those things, they're still like this, the first thought is this, oh, I want that, I've got to do that, I feel the pressure of that, then, then that's not the leading thought in our mind. We must count that as something that needs to go. It's standing between us and God when it should be Christ standing between us and God. That's what we put our confidence in. You alone, Jesus. When we take our eyes off Jesus and we put it on the confidence of the flesh, we begin to lose joy because we begin to feeling the pressure to impress him. It should matter to us. It must matter to us that we understand the surpassing worth. If Paul understanding it was enough to make him lose all of these great things, then we must understand it too. Otherwise, we'll settle for something of no value. What else should matter to us? Which brings us to the, the, the finishing thought of that verse. What else should matter to us is being willing to lose anything for Christ. Being willing to lose anything, anything that would stand between us and Jesus. Look what he says. He says, for his sake, the middle of verse eight, for his sake, Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why is this important for us? We've got to be ready. We need to be willing and a heart because listen, we, we have so many things, so many things that pull us away from Christ. I, I know in our minds, it's like, what is it? What is it that pulls me away from Christ? I don't struggle with circumcision. I don't struggle with some of these things back in that day, but we all have ritual. We have family associations. We have traditions and religion, sincerity of the heart and works that are constantly deceiving us into putting our confidence in that. If we're on our deathbed and we know we're about to die and stand before God, what is giving us a sense of safety when we stand before God? If it's anything but Jesus And faith in him, that's what that is. Reading your Bible is great and it's good, but we can approach reading scripture with a heart that wants to feel safe and confident in our act of reading it. Do you see how simply deceiving this could be? Maybe you, like me, have felt the thoughts where I I really need to read my Bible. I really need to read my Bible. Man, I should read my Bible more. I hate that I'm not reading it. Why does something so good have to be so hard? You know what? I'm just going to set an alarm. And I'm going to make myself, and I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. Just going to do it. Do you know what all of those longings are really saying in our heart? Feeling guiltless, feeling peace, feeling uh, a, a clean conscience is more important to me. And so I'm going to use my Bible reading as a means to fill a sense of nobility. It's a very good thing. We should read our scripture, but that's a different approach than, oh, I've seen how valuable this guy is and I just want to know him more. God, God, show me and open this up and let me know more of the one who's given everything to me. I need to know you. I want to know you. God, help me. God, help me. 
And forgive me when I put my affections on other things. Yeah, the flesh struggles to read this, but I want more of it. That's different than I need to read it. Man, feeling bad about myself. I just need to get up in the morning. I wish I would get up in the morning and read. Think about that. Think about that. Our desire and our struggle and our guilt goes no further, no further than wanting to feel better. That's the point of approaching scripture a lot of the times. That is a confidence that needs to be destroyed. Reading your Bible more will not make the day of judgment easy. It will not change anything. The only thing that changes us standing before God in judgment is what we'll see later is faith in Jesus. Being willing to lose anything for Christ. Christ alone, no longer seeking confidence. Let me give you another word for confidence that might help you understand this a little better. It's the word safety. Safety. What is it you're tempted to depend on to feel safe in standing before God? Paul here says, I have suffered the loss. I want you to think for a second about what Paul has potentially gone through. The guy is later in life. He has built a reputation that would, that would propel itself into the minds and the understanding of others. He would almost be famous in a way. He'd be someone people look to. He would have family. He would have friends that are all drenched in the culture that he's growing up with. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church and Jesus intervenes, opens his eyes and he sees the true value of Jesus in that moment and says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then his journey begins and God gives him the beautiful symbol of the scales on his eyes and something like scales falling off to show now you truly see me as you should. And what do you see? The great persecutor of the church becoming the great apostle of the church that God is using to spit in the face of the enemy and using as an example for even all the Jewish people of what their conversion should look like as well. But what do you think Paul suffered in changing his position. Now joining the very ones that he was persecuting. What type, of, what type of friends and family would he have lost in following Jesus? Who would have been done with him? It's a brand new life with a group of people in an area of life that would have been totally foreign to what he had known. He would have lost and had to given up everything. What is it in our life that if it stood between Jesus, we had to suffer the loss of it? Think about it. Getting and knowing Jesus more. Family and friends, associations, people that, that would have looked to us now looking at us different because of this decision to know Jesus more. It can come from the closest people in your life. Paul's saying, I'm losing it all. Jesus is far better but I'm suffering the loss of all things. But I would imagine that Paul did it willingly. I don't think it was that hard for him because once he saw what Jesus was like, all of these accomplishments, he would have gone to bed at night feeling great about. Now, how does he look at them? He uses this word rubbish. You know what that means? That's, a, that's the ESV's nice way of saying human excrement. It's exactly how Paul looks at these Things that he would have relied on and been dependent on that mattered to him. He said, they're dung now. 
They're excrement. They're worthless. I put it up next to Jesus. They look horrible. I look to the summit and I see clearly, but when I look back at life and I start to get tempted, these things look shiny, but then the moment I put it back to the summit, back to Jesus, I see nothing but oh, something that makes me wonder, why did I ever care about that? And why was he willing to do all this? In order that I may gain Christ. I want Jesus. I want him. He's better than anything else. I don't want anything to get in the way of that. And for you, brothers and sisters, I don't want anything to get in the way of you enjoying a pure, undefiled relationship with Jesus that has no condition of works and religiosity to it. That's an intimate relationship with the one who's given you everything and accomplished everything for you already. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Let me remind you, Jesus comes on the scene and he gives us examples of this. He gives us examples. For instance, you know the story about the woman who had the bleeding issue? She'd been bleeding, had a hemorrhage for around 12 years. Back in that day, that would have been a horrible situation. She'd have been unclean always. People probably would have walked on the other side of the street to avoid her. She probably would have been ostracized even from her family. She would have always lived on the outskirts of life because she was constantly unclean and everyone knew it. She's the perfect example of someone who put confidence in the flesh because here's what the scripture says. Here's what the gospel reveals. Jesus has great crowds of people walking around him. They're on the way to try to heal Jairus' daughter. And it says there was a woman who had a bleeding issue and she heard that Jesus was in town. And she said, if I could go and just touch his robe, I'll be made well. But then it reveals this about her. It says that she had suffered much at the hands of physicians and spent all that she had trying to help herself get better. And it said she didn't get any better. She only grew worse. What is, what is the reality and the picture of the scripture telling us that? You cannot buy the healing you desperately need. You cannot work for the healing you desperately need. You cannot rely on any professional in the world for the healing you desperately need. And she got to the point where she was exhausted. She was done with trying to do things herself. And it said she heard that Jesus was in town and she pushed through the crowds and she reached and she touched the hem of his garment. And instantly, instantly, instantly she felt the healing she had desperate been longing for. And it came from Jesus alone, not from her efforts, not from her money, not from her religiosity, not from a professional. It came because she truly believed that Jesus was the only thing that could help her. And this is true for us as well. Imagine the joy she walked away from Jesus with Now imagine her trying to go back to those old efforts to find joy. No, she continues to go back to the memory of what Jesus did for her. And she became a follower because she had experienced and understood the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Do you? Do you? Do we? This must matter to us. Anything that competes with Christ is worthless. Be ready to give it up. And you need to go deeper in your thinking than just the sins that you struggle with. We're talking about the good things that we would use to try to feel joy and confidence before the Lord. 
This is very important because if in the book of Galatians we'll see, Paul is revealing what taking circumcision would actually mean for them. So what should matter to us? Being willing to lose anything for Christ. How about this next one? This next one. What should matter to us is standing before God in faith alone. Standing before God in faith alone. Nothing else. When we stand before him, the Bible says it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. When we stand before God, what is it we're going to be hoping that God notices about us that will make him let us in to his kingdom? He says this in verse 9. This is what he wanted. I'm giving up everything. It's rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Right? He has this expectation that at the end, at the end, when I am found, when I'm standing and I'm looking and things are being revealed, what will be found is that I am in Christ. Not having a righteousness of mine own that comes from the law. This is amazing. You're talking about a guy who would have had reasons for confidence in the flesh, who had done everything perfect, is now saying, I don't feel bad about losing that. This prideful man that would have, that would have seen himself as something for people to look up to. God has humbled me and helped me give up to that. I no longer desire that. I don't count it as anything. It's not a trophy on my shelf that I look back to and I'm like, look how great I was. No, it's garbage. It's garbage. Because I want to be found in him, in Jesus. I don't want to be standing before God with my own righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends, depends on faith. What's the real issue of putting confidence in the flesh? If you look back to Galatians 5, you don't need to turn there. But Paul said this to the Galatians who were suffering the same type of thing. He reminded them, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, get this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. Inside, I think we amen this, but I think we struggle with this in ways we don't realize. Because at the end of the day, it's really hard when you are tasting your own failures and you are feeling the guilt and the conviction and you're feeling like a failure in those moments you are tested. What means more to you in that moment? To experience the joy of the unconditional love and mercy and grace of Jesus that is on you right there in that moment and to be fueled by that or to somehow start scurrying to make up for the bad things you did so you can feel better and feel like you've paid penance before the Lord because you haven't really known his goodness because you always look at him as a vindictive person who's going to strike you dead if you don't get everything right. So the example of the wicked servant who buried the talent didn't understand God rightly. Paul's like, I don't want anything to get in the way of that. Anything to get in the way of that. Jesus Christ has done everything. I, without him, I can do nothing. There's nothing powerful within me. He has all the power. I want him. I want him. And all these alluring things of the world that people tempt us with, I don't want to let it back into my life. Be found in him with his righteousness, not my own. 
What should matter to us is standing before God in faith alone. That should matter. That should be something that we care about. And we make sure nothing tempts us away from a pure faith in Jesus. And then finally, look at this. Verse 10 through 11, he's going to reveal ultimately what should matter to us is an intimate relationship with Christ. An intimate relationship with Christ. He says there in verse 10, that I may know him. He's saying it again, that I may know him, that, that personal, intimate knowing, not just, not just mental, but I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to help you guys understand this and why I'm saying that this, these two verses point to an intimate relationship with Christ. Because Paul is in this moment, he's really just bearing his heart and his passion and his soul. And he's really showing this, this is how much I love Jesus. He's, he's so He's so wonderful. He's so much better than anything else. I just want to know him. I want to be with him. And I want to share in the life that he has for me with him. So if you're writing down, here's what I have real quick. To share his, first and foremost, his righteousness, as we just read in verse 9. He wants to share Christ's righteousness. He wants to share his power. Not necessarily, I want to have it so I can use it, but I want to experience your power, the same power that rose you from the dead, which is why you say, and know him in the power of his resurrection. Then he says, and may share in his sufferings, share in his sufferings. Then he says, I want to be become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want you to think about this, this passage as a present thing that's working constantly. So right now, Paul's saying, man, I want to know Jesus now. Right now, you, want to, you know what I want to know and experience? The power that he has. The power to do what? To go through sufferings like him. I want to share in the sufferings like him. Like, oh, Paul, why would you want to suffer? Don't you think if, if God had power, you would use his power to keep you from suffering? Well, the reality is life suffering and pain is a reality, regardless if you follow Jesus or not. I want you to think about it like this. I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings because all of his sufferings accomplished something. They weren't pointless. He was giving his life and his body for the sake of others. And I was one of those others. And I want to share in that suffering and impact the world with it as well. If I'm going to suffer, which I'm going to suffer anyway, but if I'm going to suffer, I want it to mean something. I want it to mean something. And having an intimate relationship with Jesus and understanding and being connected to his sufferings will put us in a situation through the power of God to go through those sufferings, but have the mind of Christ to know that God's going to use it for something. Use it to help others. Use it to glorify him. Have your way in me, God. And then he says, becoming like him in his death. What? What? We're all going to die anyway. We're all going to die anyway. The scripture says that it is a beautiful thing in his sight, the death of his saints. Death is simply a bridge. Death is a bridge from the life that is not worth living and not worthy of giving everything up for, but giving this life up for, 
for the billions of years of eternity that are to come. And death is the bridge that gets us there. Which is why believers don't, re, don't uh, grieve at funerals like those who have no hope because we have hope. I want to become conformed to a death like his which was also purposeful. Paul was beheaded, beheaded because of his faith. And you and I benefit thousands of years later from the faithfulness of Paul. But ultimately, he says this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, when you read that, you think like, ooh, Paul is uncertain about the resurrection. And Paul's great. Uh, How can I be certain that God's going to raise me from the dead? He's not showing uncertainty here. Paul is doing what he does in this passage as well as other passages to show humility. To show, I'm not relying on myself. I am the least of the apostles. I'm no longer this guy who feels a sense of confidence and safety in my ability to be a Pharisee. But I've come to realize I am nothing without God and I'm utterly lost unless he works. And if by somehow even me, this horrible sinner can be raised from the dead, that's what I care about. And this is a statement of humility. In this passage and in this moment to the Philippians, he's showing that, look, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. God's going to raise me from the dead. Look at the horrible things I did, persecuting the church. I've given up all of these things. These things don't matter. Don't be tempted by these guys. You are the circumcision. You have faith in Jesus Christ. The victory has already been won. And if God can save me and raise me from the dead, he'll do the same thing for you. We're told elsewhere in scripture that we will be given a resurrection like Jesus' body. Jesus promising to his disciples, if I go, I go and prepare a place, if I do, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. I'm going to take you and bring you with me. So this is not a statement of uncertainty of the work and the promise of God in his life, but a statement of humility that even someone like Paul could attain this. And he says later, only let us in this book hold fast to what we have attained. Righteousness of Christ and his future promise of a resurrection and eternal life. And it's given to all who place their faith in Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing else. Church, this is what should matter to us. You have an intimate, intimate relationship with Jesus. One, one that, that is longing to be conformed to every aspect of his life. Wanting to just know him. Not because you're trying to impress him. Not because you're trying to feel better better about being a better Christian in the eyes of God, not because you just want to get rid of the the weird feeling of guilt and not doing it, but the one who realizes like, yeah, I can do nothing without him and he's wonderful and I just want him. Look what he's done for me. I want to know him more. That's the heart. That's the heart. I want to close with this. Back in John chapter 6, we're told about the great crowds of people that follow Jesus. Thousands of people. Thousands of people following Jesus, right? Seeing him do wonderful things, feeding 5,000 with fish, a couple, a little bit of fish and some loaves of bread. And it says there in John 6 that Jesus had, had slipped away from everyone and gone in a boat and he'd gone to another part. And when all these people woke up, they were like, where's Jesus? The one we're following. Where's he at? And they were so concerned about following Jesus that They found out where he was, got in boats, and they went to his location. Man, look at all these crowds of people following Jesus. Isn't that what we want? People following Jesus, right? And then they show up. 
They show up on the scene. Jesus is somewhere else. They show up and like, oh, finally, Jesus, we found you. And what does he do? Immediately exposes their heart. He says, you're not following me and seeking after me because of the works and the miracles that I've done. You simply had your fill of food. I've simply filled your bellies. I made you feel better. I was a means of you furthering your comfort and luxury in life. And then Jesus says, seek for the work of bread of heaven and you'll never be hungry again. And they said, Jesus, tell us what the work of heaven is that we must be doing. It's a play on words, right? What is it we must be doing? What's the work? And so Jesus uh, ironically entertains that. And he says, here's the work that God requires that you be doing, that you believe on the one whom he sent. What? What? And if you read the story, you find out they didn't, that wasn't good enough. Well, what sign are you going to do to show us that that's the proof of that? And he reveals that their hearts were simply looking for some type of means. Either one, they wanted Jesus to be able to make life better and easier and more entertaining for them. But when he spoke truth to them and tried to lead their hearts to a simple faith in him, they rejected it because that's too easy. That doesn't make sense. Listen, if we try to live our life pleasing God on our own terms and through our own works, we will make Christ of no value to us. Jesus has secured it all, church. So let's hear every single day of our life, find the repentance through the goodness, kindness, and forbearance of God through Jesus. And let our works, let our efforts, and let the good things that we have been predestined for flow from an appreciation of his worth and the glory that he has given to us in our salvation. That's so much different. That's so much different than feeling like we got to wake up pleasing God every single day of our life. You look to Christ. You put your faith in him. You trust in him. And he will give you the peace and the joy and a reason to rejoice through the real gospel. Not one that requires works. Let's pray. Our good God and Father Jesus, I thank you for truth that you reveal to us. And I pray that you would help us to understand these things, to point out in our own life where we trade in your righteousness for our own. Help us to understand where we're still going back to the law and putting ourselves under a yoke of bondage. God, help us right here and now every single day of our life to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And in that, finding the true joy through the real gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Amen. Stand up and join with us. Red.
Christ is the greatest, most valuable thing on planet Earth this side of our life. And maybe some of us are struggling, like, I, I, I'm just not there. Even, even in this sermon, I feel like a great, there's still a, some type of great pressure now that I'm not understanding and knowing Jesus enough, and now I'm still feeling that pressure that something's on my shoulder. Listen, listen. Come to Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's not expecting you to figure everything out. And I would encourage you to start with a simple prayer. A simple prayer that says, God, you know the things in my life. You know where I am putting confidence in myself. I'm tired of fighting it myself. Done. You've got to do something because I can't. 
we start there. We say, God, have your way in me and help me to understand the surpassing worth of Jesus. And you trust him and he will begin to work in your life through that humble, honest prayer of dependence on him and not ourselves. Church, I hope you know him. If you don't, you come talk to someone. We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus and a relationship with him. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless. You are loved.